0: Scholars regularly assert that at Chicago's World's Parliament of Religions in 1893, Swami Vivekananda initiated Hinduism in America. Many histories of Hinduism in America reproduce this type of synthesizing narrative. But how was quote-unquote Hinduism defined by Vivekananda, and how was it understood by his American audiences? How did it relate to the various South Asian religious practices and beliefs that are subsumed under this term Hinduism. In Heathen Hindu Hindu, American Representations of India, 1721-1893, Michael Altman tackles literary and visual accounts of religion in India to understand the production of the category Hinduism in America. He provides an episodic genealogy of the ways in which South Asians were constructed in the American imaginary, Instead of reclassifying the various terminology used by missionaries, columnists, or transcendentalists as Hinduism, Altman carefully plots the social, political, and theological claims invested in those terms. In our conversation, we discuss early American religious culture, category construction, evangelical knowledge production, Orientalist discourses, displays of South Asian material culture, Unitarians, transcendentalists, and theosophical society. Ramahan Roy, Protestant Morality and National Culture, Public School Education, Missionary Accounts, and the Contours of American Religious Studies. I'm one of your co hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Michael Altman about Heathen, Hindu, Hindu, American Representations of India, 1721 to
1: 1893.
0: Welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Religion. How are you doing?
1: Good. really glad to be here.
0: Thanks for writing this wonderful book, Heathen, Hindu, Hindu, American Representations of India, 1721 to 1893. I certainly enjoyed it. I'm sure a lot of people uh, who pick up the book will enjoy it as well. Um, But before we get into the contents, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to the study of religion, uh, perhaps moments or people that have been influential in how you tackle the topic or uh, your kind of – domain in terms of your your data. What 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 what's your story?
1: Yeah, um so I came into religious studies. I remember my first uh year of college at the College of Charleston. Um I uh, grew up in a family where religion was a was a, a uh, always a kind of topic of interest. And um and got into the College of Charleston super excited to take this class that I found in the in the uh catalog on uh what was it called? I don't remember the name of it, but the basic gist of it was it was a comparative class uh where they uh where the professor chose a different theme each semester. And the theme was on holy people and it was a uh, uh it was the one hundred level course and they looked at um from a Western tradition, an eastern tradition, and then another tradition of the of the um professor's choice. And so it was this amazing class on like uh as we looked at the Zen master and we looked at um uh Hindu uh holy women and we looked at Crow Medicine Man, and we looked at a Muslim Sufi saint. Um and uh it was uh it was just blew my mind. Um and so I got interested in in really studies from that class, um, was an English major uh and slowly over time decided to double major uh, and because uh, I was English major, I came into college wanting to be a sports writer. And my dad told me to take English classes and learn how to write, and then I could learn how to cover sports later. Um, uh, and so, but slowly realized that maybe I didn't. Maybe I would uh, instead of being a, a sports writer, I would be a study religion. It really clinched my junior year. I took the was supposed to be the sort of senior capstone seminar. I took it a year early because I wanted to take it with um, Zeph Bjerkin, who is still there. Um, hi, Zeph. Um, and, uh, it was a class called religion after nine 11. And in that class, um, uh, we read, uh, all sorts of stuff. But what really jumped out to me was, um, William Huntington's clash of civilizations. And then we read Edward Said's critique of that. And then read the introduction. Uh, and I think the introduction and maybe the postscript that was written on the, on the later reissue of, uh, Said's Orientalism. And that just kind of blew my mind. Um, And so started thinking about grad school after that class going to my senior year and then ended up um, not sure if I wanted to do – this is where the book comes in – not sure if I wanted to do religion in America because I was just fascinated by religion and politics and and that kind of stuff but also really interested in India um, but really not – I don't have the discipline to learn languages and you have to know a lot of languages to study India properly (laughs) and so – I went into grad school um, at Duke and had this experience of, I don't know what I'm, I was, in, I was admitted into their program uh, in religion and modernity, which I look back on that now and I'm like, so basically religion and religion, because religion has like a modern category already. But um, didn't really know what that meant, but got in uh, and started, uh, took classes both in American religion uh, and uh a uh, religion in colonial India with Leela Prasad, who's um, still there. And at that time, uh, Duke and UNC were just chock full of excellent scholars in American religion. They still are. Um, there's still great people there, but there was a sort of, um, but Tom Tweed and Lori Maffley Kipp and, um, uh, was, we're, were still there and at, at UNC and, um, Jason Bivens, who's still at NC state is, was there in Raleigh. And so it was a huge, it was just a great time to be an Americanist in the, Research Triangle Park. So I uh, ended up trying to bring these two together by writing this master's thesis um, on representations of India in um, three different uh, 19th century magazines. And I, I got that idea actually from from Tom Tweed, who I was talking to him about about stuff, and he had written his you know book on Buddhism in America, and he kind of said, you know, no one's really talked about, there's always all this stuff about India in the same period, and and you know, translations of texts and stuff. And no one's really talked about that. And I was like, I'll, I'll go talk about that. So that became <laughs> my master's thesis. And then um, decided I wanted to go on and do the PhD and got into Emory, uh, which Emory was great. It was the top choice for me because it had a strong South Asian program and faculty and a strong Americanist faculty. Um, and so ended up there and basically took expanded and clarified and did more work on the what was the thesis topic into a dissertation um during my time there. And that became the basis for the book and then after the dissertation I you know I kept thinking about it and chewing on it and, and I write about this in the in the preface to the book some. That there's this whole change is the way I thought about things and began to it became this 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 book. So it's it's been a project I've been working on for uh I guess I started the master's thesis in the fall of in the spring of 2007, so almost 10 years now. Yeah, long journey. So I'm done with it, and I don't want to talk about it. Anymore. <laughs> so this will be a very All right, short and interview. and that's the conversation. Interview.
0: Mike, I wanted to ask you about this. Is kind of a two part question here, so I don't know where you want to tackle it from. But you you talk about in the preface, and you just mentioned this this your your kind of a approach where your method changed over time, where ultimately in the book you have, you look at American representations of India, the deployment of that system of knowledge production, and basically uh, produce a, a genealogical analysis of category construction. Earlier, at least from what I can tell from the, the preface, it sounds like you, you followed in a similar way, searching for quote-unquote Hinduism in America's past, so can you talk both about the problem of these classifying terms that you've come across and that others have come across and labeled Hinduism? Uh, what what do you feel yeah. like are the key problems with that type of synthesizing narrative? And then, how did your uh, approach change over the course of your writing? Um, and and how would you suggest tackling this kind of uh, analysis of representations?
1: Yeah. Um so for me when I started the you know, even back in two thousand seven I was like, I'm gonna go find Hinduism in the nineteenth century. And the the big <laughs> selling point, right? Like the big uh the big punchline was everyone thinks Hinduism comes to America in eighteen ninety-three with the World's Parliament of Religion and Swami Vivekananda and his speech, and I will show them that it comes much earlier through these other sources. And then I started doing the dissertation and finding you know, and, and there was some stuff about like you know, transcendentalists and theosophists and their encounters with Hindu stuff. Um But I, and in the dissert by the time I got to the dissertation, I had read all of the good critiques of Hinduism as a category that it was, you know, uh, Richard King has a famous sort of take on this, that, you know, it doesn't happen until the colonial period that this term comes to mean. It's it's a rather meaningless term. It's invented... Not meaningless, but it's it's a, it was invented in the 19th century as a way to make sense of what religion was happening in India. It's not a native term, um, all of this. And then it, that kind of problematized what I was going to do. And so in the dissertation, if anyone goes and digs it up, uh, it is I use the phrase Hindu religions as uh, my phrase for talking about all these different representations and things. Because there isn't... No one's saying... Hinduism in um you know the 1820s and it the, you don't see that hinduism kind of language very f- until really the late late 19th century occasionally here and there but for the most part it's religion of the hindus it's brahmanism and it's talking about stuff in india that we now think of as hinduism right and so i didn't want to i realized that i can't backwards project hinduism on it so when someone has a horribly misspelled uh or you know of uh, Vishnu with like two e's s h n o o like is that hinduism right um and so i came up with this term hindu uh hindu religions or hindu religious culture and uh wrote the dissertation was very ha- happy with it and then, and then had this horrible realization that like there's no difference between my using hindu religious cultures to re- to represent this stuff and Lydia Maria Child calling, talking about Brahmanism, or George Freeman Clark talking about Brahmanism, or you know um, Hannah Adams talking about the religion of the Hindus. Like I was just adding another term onto the long list of ways that Westerners had represented, Western as Americans had represented the religion, what people in India were doing or thinking or writing. Like I was just now adding another link on this long chain. So in my attempt to try to uh, explain this thing. I was just re—I was uh, re-inscribing it with a new term. So, and that maybe this—the selling point of the book is not, was not going to be, "Hey, Hinduism was here a lot earlier," which is true. It's interesting, and people. I think that's a good first step. But the real punchline is, "Hey, how does a rel- how does this re- encounter with outs with the outside with the other?" with this person over there and the way people talk about these people over there, how does that shape things that are happening here, right? How are the arguments about what people are doing in India, really arguments about what it means to be an American or what it means to be a Protestant or what it means to be a Christian or, or whatever. Um, and so I just gave up trying to come up with my own term and turned the whole thing around. Rewrote the, basically the meat of the dissertation and the meat of the book are the same chapters are rearranged a little bit, but the framing, the preface, the prologue, the epilogue, we're all, I rewrote all of those, and went through the text and reframed everything. Did a, got rid of every mention of Hinduism the, the, uh, without an explanation. Every mention of Hindu. Someone's going to go find one now that I missed or something. But <laughs> got, got, uh, re, like, kind of went back over it and reframed it, looking at what were the terms in the sources. So, and that's where the new. That's the title. So, I mean, it sums up in the title, right? The title of the dissertation was um, I don't remember, but it was something like from heathen from. Something about Hinduism, and and then I had a, a another title at one point when I uh, sort of just barely revised it um, when I was pitching the book that was from heathen to Hindu, um, as if there was some sort of narrative flow from the one to the other, and then I realized no no it's it's heathen Hindu Hindu with commas that don't signal any necessary progress from one to the other, but just show that there's all these different terms and images. It really should be like heathen Hindu. Hindu, Brahmanism, Brahmanist, Pandit, like there's all sorts of things we could put in there. Um, and so I just stuck really close to what the sources said and didn't try to add, tried to uh, analyze and explain what's going on in the sources, but not try to think that it was pointing towards some big unified whole. There's no strand connecting all this together under the umbrella of Hinduism or Hindu religions. Um, it's a—it's They're connected and they have various it's but it's it's a web of connections and refractions and bouncing off one another there's nothing holding it all together
0: well in this genealogy you begin in the uh, 18th century and you talk about intersections of uh, the development of comparative religion orientalist discourses about india material culture flowing across uh, oceans how, how were South Asians discussed in America in the 18th century? What kind of sources were they basing their thoughts on? What kind of context do you find these representations? And what why do you think uh, it was drawing American interest?
1: Um, yeah, the first, you know, there's a um, there was a lot of European interest in India um, in the 18th century. And you see by the late 18th century, um, the earliest translations and the founding of uh, then early translations of Sanskrit texts, the founding of, um, the, uh, orientalist societies in India. Um, and so some of that is filtering back to the, uh, to America. Um, and then the, the, for there, you know, there's a, there's a sort of gap between, um, someone like cotton Mather, this Puritan, Puritan divine who looks at India, um, and the people in India and sees them basically as the same as uh, the people, the Native Americans around him in America and the in the colony. Um, for him, like the they're all heathens, um, whether they're heathens in in Malabar where he's writing to some missionaries there, or whether they're heathens, uh, you know, in Martha's Vineyard, um, they're all to him they're all heathens. Uh, and and you see that's you know based on a kind of. English understanding of early English comparative religion that's coming out um, of, of the English enlightenment in that period uh, and then America really gets after the revolution you see um, uh, opening of trade where the American uh, United American trade with India was really important especially in um, New England towns like Salem Massachusetts and so there's a the beginning of an interest. Uh, in India, in that way, but it's never really talking about religion per se. It's it's sort of divorced from that, from those sort of convers- comparative religion conversations that are happening. But you do have, by the late 18th century, um, the first kind of interest by that that really draws on all of the English source material that's coming out of Great Britain and coming out of the Indian the colony in India uh, from folks like Hannah Adams and um, Joseph Priestley, and and really the, it's. You know Priestley is an English uh, immigrant. Adams is drawing on a ton of English sources, so it's still not an American. Like, the, like what's American about it is that it's published in the United States, but the sources and everything are really still very, very British. Um, and so, the sort of earliest uh, one way that I, I think to make sense of that is that these earliest uh, comparative works in comparative religion, so Adams's Dictionary uh, of of Religions, um, and then Priestley's. Uh, comparison of the Institutes of Moses with that of the Hindus, these are actually engaging in larger arguments that are happening in Europe about religion and comparative religion they 're not about American arguments and they're kind of these uh, and, and they 're sort of the transplantation of um, of European questions about religion in America um, and so that's I kind of see them as, as functioning in that uh, in that way early on in the eighteenth century and so it 's not really until I think the nineteenth century that you begin to see Uh, India coming up and representations of India coming up in American arguments about religion.
0: And this is where you take the book and starting in the second chapter, you talk about how Americans are relying on missionary accounts of South Asian practices and beliefs, uh, but also um, there are, I guess, native informants being involved in these discussions in some ways, specifically Ramahan Roy, um, he was key to the American debates about what religion was. Um, Can you talk a little bit about who he was? How does he fit into the 19th century narrative and what role he had in informing uh, American representations?
1: Yeah, um, Ramahan Roy I feel like is uh, an underappreciated figure in American religious history um, because he... I don't know. I feel like it's come out, it's, it's fallen out of fashion in, uh, American, the study of American religion to talk about like Unitarians or to talk about the sort of New England, these sort of New England elites. They're seen as boring. There's, they, they're not as, for some reason, we, we love talking about the evangelicals of the 19th century. Um, but I think, um, you know, in the past, you know, ten, and some people are doing this work, but not as many as used to. And I, I, I tried to go back. Uh, and look at the the big debate between Unitarians and Evangelicals, and, and a kind of split that, that that happened, and and an argument, a fierce argument, in, in terms of the the press, the the Christian press at the time. And what's what's fascinating to me about this, and it is a sort of parochial skirmish amongst New England white people, but the the argument. Um, Ramun Roy just gets thrust into the middle of this argument. So Roy, who was a reformer in India, often known as the sort of father of modern India, um, he um, well, has a remarkable sort of background uh, where he was uh, trained both as a kind of uh, scholar of Sanskrit and, and Indian uh, sacred texts, but also um, had, was influenced by Islam uh, and then learned um, English and working uh, for an Englishman, and and began reading um, all sorts of Western philosophy. Um, is, you know, he was as a sort of famous. I can't remember who is it. Noted that he's as you know, he knows as much about as as much about Locke as he does about um, you know Hindu thought. And so he's this kind of interesting transition figure between West and East, and he he seeks to purge Hinduism or what he sees as Hindu religion. He was one of the first people to use the term Hinduism in the 1820s. Um, but he, uh, of what he sees as sort of the, the vagaries and the superstition. So he makes a call for, you no, know, no, we don't need to use images. We don't need, you know, so-called idols. We don't need, um, what we need is to focus on the texts, on the Upanishads, on the Vedic texts, um, on the sort of, philosoph- on, on Vedanta, the sort of uh, uh, philosophical system, that Hindus ought are uh, really worshiping a monotheistic God um, and uh, he has a remarkable history in India, but he gets uh, what I thought was fascinating was his critique of his Hindu his Hindu reforming reti- critique of other Hindus of Hindu conservatives gets picked up by Unitarians because they 're like yes, we also worship a monotheistic God and there 's this wonderful um, transplant uh, translation of Roy's critique of his Hindu polytheists uh and unitarians were like yeah the trinity's polytheism too basically and our critique of, Trin- of trinitarianism is the same as Roy's critique of his Hindu brethren and we sh- and, and this comes to a head when Roy begins to to come after um gets in a dispute with some Baptist English Baptist missionaries in Calcutta um and uh, and so you have this remarkable thing where Unitarians begin to see Roy as one of their own. They even talk about him as maybe being a Unitarian Christian, um, and, and I don't think Roy thought of himself that way. Um, but the argument that Roy has with these Baptist Trinitarians, and the argument that he has with his own, you know, more conservative poly, uh, more conservative Hindu Hindus around him, uh, just becomes wrapped up in the Unitarian argument against Trinitarians, which and and I just that was it's just a remarkable way that the the argument about what's going on in India over there was really an argument of what was happening in new england uh churches
0: now uh while other actors were involved here, Protestant morality became uh, kind of dominant in public discourses and it was especially uh intertwined with notions of national health um and you talk about this being socialized through things like public schools and uh, popular media uh, of the time. So how were South Asians constructed in, in these types of representational domains and how were they used to produce this American national cultural identity?
1: Yeah, there's a real um, way that India, among many other things, um, many other places, but India in particular, because there's so much, uh, there's so much English language source material, becomes a, a, a foil um over against which to project sort of American identity. And so you can kind of draw a very simple kind of mirror image of white, Protestant, um, democratic, uh, industrious um America versus dark skinned, heathen, um, uh, despotic uh uh backwards um India. And so and this has its roots in some of the missionary um descriptions but it gets sort of translated from the, you know the missionary argument about heathens in India was that they could all be they're all every 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 heathen is a potential christian so the line of difference between um self and other christian and heathen is a line that's constructed so that it can then be sort of effaced um the the line of difference between the American Protestant, white American Protestant uh, and the uh, brown Indian Hindu uh, was much, much, much starker and much more, much less about the Hindu and much more about representing what an American meant and was, and was also tied up with um, Protestant fears and, and critiques of American Catholicism. So like, the best the, – and this whole chapter, that whole chapter on American national culture came for me out of uh, a single political cartoon from Harper's Weekly by Thomas Nast, the famous anti-Catholic cartoonist. Uh, and it's called uh, The American River Ganges, and it is this image of a riverbank with uh, alligators – well, not allig- It's It is bishops whose hats as they lay on their bellies look like alligator mouths, and they're crawling up the bank towards – a group of Protestant children who have a Protestant minister with a Bible in his coat pocket standing athwart a uh, to protect them from these. Um, and in the uh, background of the image, there's um, uh, you can see the uh, Vatican rising up in the background and the public school with an upside-down American flag crumbling. And my favorite detail, which I think if you look in the book, the, the version that's reprinted in the book, you have to look in the very, very back, upper right corner. You probably can't even tell what it is. But it is actually Lady Liberty being led off to the gallows, um, and so this amazing cartoon um, just brings it all together. Where the image of there's a famous missionary image of women throwing their babies into the river to to crocodiles in India uh, out of religious devotion, and so this image gets of of sort of um, violent Hindu religion and and superstition that that endangers children gets reinscribed by Nast into. Catholic bishops, right? And the fact that he invokes this, the American River Ganges, right? Like, how did people even know that this was a thing? Like, the, the idea that Americans knew enough about India and enough about Hindu religions or religion in India to then be able to make the connection between Ganges, violence, superstition, and then Catholic bishops. Um, there's just so much going on in that in that connection. But it sort of shows showed me that there is a lot here about the way India became this, this um, resource... For deploying anti-Catholic, pro-Protestant, white supremacist um, uh, images of what it meant to be an American, um, and it had its roots in the earlier in the earlier evangelical missionary literature and their descriptions of, of Hindu relig- of Hindus as violent or heathens Hindu heathens as violent, but also um, with this extra layer of sort of national fervor um, in the nineteenth century.
0: And this also got implemented in, in school books. How, yeah. how did that work?
1: Yeah, I mean, the school books was fascinating because um, the geography books especially functioned as a kind of um, early anthropology of sorts where they had these large opening chapters that basically were, gave you taxonomies of difference across all cultures. They wouldn't use the word cultures, but all people, all nations. Um, and they could divide them across sort of states of society, they could divide them across races. Um, they could divide them across religious beliefs, um, and and it really taught, gave gave um, American children a kind of way to plot plot in this sort of moment of of as we're getting closer and closer to the sort of moments of high colonialism by Europe. Plot different parts of the world and different sorts of people in the world along these sort of matrices of race, religion, society, or civilization, um, and of course. Uh, American, Protestant, white people were at the, these are hierarchical matrices. These were not, you know, these were not all equal um, in their eyes. And so, white at the very top stood the enlightened, as they were called, white Protestant um, America um, and Europe, Britain as well. Um, and so, those sort of um, taxonomies of difference um, then led to all sorts of inc- details about India that show up in school books about. Um, that really were a way of teaching children these values of white Protestantism through giving them examples of the opposite of that in in India and other parts of the world. I mean, you could use – there's a chapter like this to be written about various various other parts of the world that are in these books.
0: Now, uh, other groups and uh, individuals were contesting this American Protestantism through their own representations of religion in India. And you look at uh, two groups, Transcendentalists and uh, the Theosophical Society, um, which very often uh, people think of these in in very similar ways. Um, But these two groups were were doing different things with their understandings or their representations of religions of India. So uh, what were the ways that um, these groups represented uh, and constructed Hindu religion and for what purposes?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it goes back – well, let's go back a minute for a second. Like the in the 1820s, with you have the Unitarians who are championing Raman Roy and the missionaries that are representing India's violent heathenism, bloodthirsty, loud, chaotic heathenism that needs to be overcome with Christian truth. That split that starts there. Um, continues all the way, there's sort, of, there's sort of two trains that keep going sort of parallel, right? So the nationalist train that we just talked about, and then the flip side of the Unitarian train, and it, it actually does connect kind of directly, is the transcendentalist and then later on the Theosophist. And so these are what we could think of. Some people would call the positive representations, but I think they have their own kind of, I think positive, probably not the right term. There's their own kind of insidious essentialism underneath them. Um, but for the transcendentalists, you know, you've got uh, you know the earliest Thoreau and Emerson, and these are folks that are a little more. We we there's more about their encounters with India, but for them, they wanted uh, as America is is industrializing, um, as Protestantism is sort of the dominant has sort of a cultural hegemony, um, uh, in this period. There's a kind of pushback. Look for an alternative. Look for a way out. Look for way something else. And and India becomes one place to find that. Um, be, and, and but that's based on a reading of India as still being the opposite of America, right? So like even in this view that values Indian, um, that puts high value on Indian texts and Indian ideas, a they only are putting value on certain Sanskrit texts, right? No one's valuing the Jagannath temple um, in Puri. They're valuing the Vedas, right? They're not valuing ritual practice. They're not valuing the you know the. The sort of calendar of auspicious days. They're valuing the Vedas, they're valuing the text, they're valuing the philosophy. And B, they value it because they see it as the op- as something that America lacks. That we need. And, and I think Emerson's um, essay on Plato gets at this exactly right, where he it's a part of his Representative Men book, and he sees in Plato the philosopher, the representative philosopher who could balance East and West, because in in Emerson's mind, the East is full of Activity and multiplicity and movement and uh, and this is the industrializing and he's looking around at the industrializing America in the 19th century and the in uh, the West and then in the East I may have mixed that up just then but in the East he sees cont- contemplation philosophy of sort of monism not of of universality of slow moving slowing down and that. That the representative philosopher, which he, he gives us to Plato can bring both of those together, and that America needs to bring both of these together that we lack a kind of contemplative um, uh, mystical side and and, and uh, Thoreau feels the same way um, in, in a lot of ways. and so the turn uh, the turn to the east is to an east that is essentialized as always already mystical, contemplative, uh, not industrial, uh, uh, ancient, right? There's an interest in, in the ancient parts of the East, not the contemporary parts of the East. Um, and so uh, it's a different reading. Uh, it's a reading that tends to find something valuable in the East rather than something to be overcome or or disregarded um, like the other reading. But it's still... Um, it's detrimental and richard king talked about this because when you when you render the east as essentially mystical it loses any ability to be political and so any you know the any of the it, it it totally blinds or totally effaces um empire and power and all the things that were happening in india um in that period um like it's just fascinating that these guys are um so interested in india so interested in you know um In a kind of, many of them were, you know, were, would consider themselves abolitionists or opposed slavery, were opposed, like, you know, uh, Thoreau was famously opposed to the Mexican War, all this, but yet had nothing to say about the revolt in 1857, right? Because it's not even on their radar. In fact, I didn't write that in the book and I should have, but it's not even on their radar. Um, uh, when there's this revolt in 1857 against, against the British, they're more interested in, and the the philosophical ancient philosophical text.
0: Now you uh, conclude the book with uh, the event that many people begin this history of Hinduism in America, as you mentioned earlier, the uh, 1893 World's Parliament of Religions. Um, and this, there's been a lot of scholarship on this. There's a diversity of uh, interpretations of what this is all about. Uh, w- for, for you, what does this event mark uh, in the study of religion in america specifically south asian religions um and what what do you think we should do with it analytically how should we uh, tackle it
1: i see the parliament as nonsensical at a certain level as i think i use the i think cacophonous is my image of it i think it's a lot of people talking past one another i think it's a lot of people um you know i think there's been a uh the parliament has been deployed to mean all sorts of things. And I kind of think they're all right. Um, That it's not just Protestant hegemony. It's not just the beginning of pluralism. It's not just uh, the entrance of Asia into the American sphere, um, sort of American culture, American religions. It's all of those things happening at the exact same time. And so in my mind, it, it, it has this kind of, just chaos to it. When I when you I think if you go if you sit down and you go through and read all of the um the speeches there's two volumes there's there's two sets of these there's the um two different um two different two volume sets that have all of the speeches that were given. And if you look at the press reporting, you can find whatever you want to make of it. You can find the pluralists like Thomas Wentworth Higginson who are talking about the sympathies of religion, but you can find the the horrible racists who are talking about the missionaries who are talking about how backwards the rest of the world is religiously. And you can find, well, you can find the critiques of, of, of empire coming out of, uh, the Asian delegates. So like, it strikes me as, um, just a big, big, hairy mess of ideas that are all bouncing off one another. And so I don't think it actually moves, moves anything in any one direction, uh, which I think is what's so fascinating about it. And for me, I, 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 see it when I look specifically at what does this tell us about India? You kind of see everything that we've seen already up to this point in the book. And that's kind of how I think the chapter, I wanted it to function is, yeah, you got your evangelical missionaries talking about heathenism. You got your transcendentalists talking about a universal religion of which, you know, Hinduism has, h- India has a part to play. You've got uh, Vivekananda. The new thing, I think, is that you've got someone like Vivekananda and a few other uh, South Asians who are able to speak for themselves. But what they're saying, just sort of falls alongside all the other representations and so it's kind of a little bit of everything and so it's kind of nothing at a certain level um and i think that's you know i think that's interesting about it i I don't think it's just pluralism or just protestant you know power or just the rise of modernism in america i mean it's a bit of all of those things at once um and so i see it as just total total kind of chaos uh and i don't you know and and and, and I think sort of – so all the other readings, I think, sure, yeah, it's that. It's definitely that, but also these other 11 or 12 things.
0: Now, you do look uh, specifically at Vivekananda and some of what he, he says there at the parliament. Um, he's uh, kind of portrayed as this key figure and almost uh, kind of made a, uh, a local celebrity in a sense. Um, so uh, could you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what his – representation of Hinduism, uh, was all about how did it align or disrupt these, these dominant narratives about American religious culture?
1: Yeah. Um, so Vivekananda, who, um, really this is his, this is the beginning and probably the least important, I think of actually what he does in the United States. Um, but he, uh, he gives this speech on Hinduism. Um, and if you go through, it's not a very long speech, he is trying to put present this thing this world religion called hinduism and so it has to, and he's trying to fit it into both the sort of paradigm of a world religion that's and this is this idea that's sort of beginning to emerge in this moment so that it's comparative to islam and christianity and judaism and all these other things but also he's trying to present it in a way that that it fits that it it will make sense to his audience of mostly liberal protestant people and liberal, pro- liberal Protestant Americans, and so there's a way that what he that the Hinduism that he deploys is very much focused on um, his own Vedanta uh, theology and Vedanta philosophy, and I think it's important to note in India, um, Vivekananda was a, a devotee of this Guru Ramakrishna, who was. Himself, a, a, a guru and a devotee of the goddess Kali, which is, you know, the goddess with the bloody, uh, severed heads on a necklace around her neck. And Ramakrishna, if you find a, if you look at a picture of him, is this sort of thin guy in a loincloth, um, sort of the stereotypical guru figure and mixed of, uh, uh, his own, uh, Vedanta philosophy with also uh, elements of Tantra and, you know, was always in, lived in a temple at a kali, and is and there's a way that all of, it's interesting what makes it over into the into the US and to the parliament when Vivekananda comes like, yeah, he comes and he brings the Vedanta, but he leaves Ramakrishna behind. And in uh, the in India, uh, the organization that Vivekananda founds is the Ramakrishna Math and Mission in India. I mean, in, in America, it's the Vedanta Society. So there's a way that um Vivekananda uh, is tweaking his message um in a very self-conscious way to fit his his sort of uh audience of white liberal protestants white liberal religious folk um in Chicago and beyond. Um he famously there's a letter he writes back to to his com- his friends in India where he talks about that the west is very rich in money and very poor in spirituality. And he said, so I give them spirituality and they give me money. Um, he was coming on a fundraising mission um, to raise money for his social work back home in India. Um, he was not coming as a, some sort of missionary drive that, that sometimes, uh, as I sometimes remembered. He came to raise money for hospitals and schools and to help poor people in India and, and, um, and had a message that he knew he could sell. Um, and go on the lecture. He would go on the lecture. went on the lecture circuit after, sh- after Chicago, and you know made and and was self-consciously trying to raise money through his lecturing fees for India.
0: In your epilogue, you you rouse up a bunch of uh, really interesting questions. You know, you're approaching the study of South Asian religions in the United States. Uh, you're very much part of and engaged with religious studies as a discipline. American religions, as far as I understand, um, and what you can gather from the book, um, is often part of this American religious history. We might say there is an American religious studies, but basically I'm wondering your take on all of these kind of intersecting methodological or theoretical positions. What what would you say – what type of work do you think is most productive in the study of American religion – what what would you say are the limits of descriptive narrative, which uh, you characterize much of kind of American religious history? What do you think demands theorization? And, and perhaps just most broadly, where do you hope to see research go in the future?
1: The epilogue is me trying, and I don't know how successfully, but trying to tease out a bunch of questions that I think are um, not being asked um, I don't try to give answers, um, but I think that the work in the book points to a different, up to that point, points to a different way of thinking about religion in America and American Buddhist history. And the epilogue is a chance, is me trying to gesture towards other questions and bigger questions and trying to look back and say, like, the, the thing that I've just done in the previous chapters is a model. How could this model be applied to other things? Um, and, and bigger than just, you know, South Asian religions or Indian American culture and for me, I think there's a couple there's a couple of questions. One is the question of taking religion for granted as an object of study in American religious history. i think it's there's a disciplinary divide here that a lot of people know between folks who are trained in American history departments and folks who are trained in religious studies, but I don't think it's always that stark. I think there's plenty of people uh in religious studies who take the category of religion for granted as an, as an obvious object of study or who nod towards, yes, 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 we know religion is a co- constructive category. Jay Z Smith, ha ha ha, but I'm going to still do what I want. Um, and they sort of tip their hat and then just like plow through to do what they were going to do anyways. So there's that question of, and, and what I hope the book shows is that, um, categories matter category that, that, that the study of religion in America is the study of this, this category that gets in that, that, has a special place specifically in American law culture history, and that investigating what 's at stake and how these categories this, this the constellation of terms and ideas around the category of religion where they come from and how they get there is is interesting and important and tells us something about American history American culture what people are and people more generally and people can evaluate the book if it does that or not um and i think a lot of people just aren't interested in that and that's that's fine um but i think so that's one side of it i think the other question and and the book gets to this a little bit is that like there's a lot of comparative religion going on in america before the founding of so-called religious studies as a discipline um what is the connection and and this is the thing that i think we need to sketch out what is the connection between say Hannah Adams uh or or James Sherman Clark or any of the people that are doing comparative work that are in this book and the mid-20th century rise of the field as a discipline, um, the change from uh, the National Association of Bible Instructors to the American Academy of Religion. Um, I point to, to William James uh, as a possible place to begin to see that. But in the end, if you look, I mean, James kind of loses out in the academic state of religion to um, some, you know, and... and the rise of you know Mircia and the sort of um explosion of the field in the sixties and early seventies. Um like there's a huge gap there, I think. But like what's you know because because the story that we tend to tell in the field of religious studies is and this is like I think in like Eric Sharp's book is or even Mazuzawa uh uh Somoko Mazuzawa's book is very much focused on like Europe and then suddenly a shift to the United States in the twentieth century. Um and like it's Max Mueller and it's um, or or even the way our theory and method syllabi, syllabi, right? It's Max Mueller, it's Durkheim, it's Freud, it's Tyler, and then somehow in it we suddenly jump to 20th century American writers. And so, it, it, what's the line between, um, like, what's the connecting line from uh, William Cantwell Smith and Eliotti to these European writers, or is the better? And this is what I suspect. The better connection might be some of these liberal Protestant or or liberal religious writers like Clark and 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 others that I mentioned in this book. So that's the kind of unexplored question I'm raising. Like, what does this study of uh, uh of one set of representations of another religion um, tell us about religious studies as an the the American history? Right? How do we put religious studies as a discipline into American religious history? And then the last thing I think is that that. I'm trying to point out is that like there's a I don't know I just there's a way to think about doing the study of religion in American history that does not rely on sort of traditional historical narrative I mean there's not like this book doesn't have it builds um, and it moves and the argument moves but it's not a narrative and the questions about uh, being being okay with uh, disjoint just juncture and in our in our work and li- thinking about um, how American religion could be approached, and I think that comes sort of falls in the heels of the categories question like <laughs> there's valuable work to be done picking up categories and and trying to do these genealogies of where they come from and what made them possible and you know they'll be pushed but i'm I'm expecting that there are people out there who say like you know well, where's the people and where's the ritual and and, and, and we spent all this time fighting to talk about lived religion and actual people in the pews and not just ideas and theologians and pastors and preachers and elites. And you're just undoing all of that. And you know, I don't think it has to be one or the other, but I think we could use more of the stuff, obviously, the more of the stuff that I'm doing.
0: This is a, certainly is an interesting book. I think uh, for, for many it will challenge their, their understanding of this history. But what else are you doing? What can we expect from you uh, down the road? What are you working on now?
1: Uh, I am in the very early stages of two projects um, and I'm not sure how I'm going to split my energy and time between both of them um, because they're both seem pretty daunting. But um, one is a cultural history of Gandhi in America. So looking, Gandhi never actually comes to the United States, but he's all over the United States in a certain way. So much like this book, a chance to look at how he's been represented, the various ways that he's represented, what's at stake in the different representations of him from um, him being represented as an early anti colonial figure in the news, um, to the formation of, you know, free, the free India movement in the United States, to his influence on civil rights, obviously, um, all the way to, um, as far, I don't know how far up we'll go, I'll go, but close to the present, at least to the 20th century, late 21st century. Um, so that's a huge, uh, thing I'm digging, am uh, sort of beginning to sketch out and, and, and come at from different angles and figure out what that's going to look like. Um, but again, not about who Gandhi really was, um, but about all the different things that Gandhi was to different people and different, and what's at stake in those. And then the other thing is even less fully formed, but, um, generally working on a number of, I don't know if it's going to be a number of essays or a book or what about, um, religion in American history more broadly, the category of religion in America, um, and how that's connected with how the way we talk about religion is tied up with political theory and um, I think I wrote somewhere and I think it has something to do with the uh, English, the English civil war. It goes to actually, the whole thing comes out of a number of uh, of moments of ideas I've had, but really um, thinking about why, why do we have courses in religious studies departments and in history departments on, american religious history or american religions uh and not swiss religion right <laughs> or like if you go to other countries they're not taking classes on our religion and we're not taking classes in other countries religious history and so there's something interesting to me about when did this emphasis on american religion as the kind of domain of of academic work as the place the thing that we should be teaching where did that come from how is it connected to or not the tradition of church history that was around since the 19th century um, and then associated with that the, the larger ideas about religion in um, American culture and American political theory going back to the co- to the colonies but I think also going all the way back to Europe and, and some European arguments about religion and the enlightenment so kind of all of those things are swirling around and I'm still figuring out how it's all going to come I'm sitting here next to me is a pile of like 12 books about the English <laughs> enlightenment Um and I'm still figuring out how it's all going to work and what's going on, and, and that's what's exciting about it. Um, but I think there's something there. I think there's, if we really want to understand religion in America, and we take religion as not a thing that's an object that's, not, that's in the world, but as a category that we're applying to all sorts of things in different places for different reasons, then I think one of the places to start looking at where that category came from in America is probably English political history. Um, and so that's sort of the hypothesis I'm going with.
0: Well, great, Mike. Uh, good Good luck on all those projects. That, yeah. uh, they sound uh, interesting to me, something I would certainly want to check out. Uh, and thanks for making the time to talk about your book. Yeah, thanks for having me. So that was my conversation with Michael Altman about his great new book, Heathen Hindu Hindu, American Representations of India, 1721 to 1893, by Oxford University Press, published in 2017. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. We'll catch you next time. That was my conversation with Michael Altman about his wonderful book, Heathen Hindu Hindu, American Representations of India, 1721 to 1893, published with Oxford University Press in 2017. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. We'll catch you next time.